Hello, everyone, and welcome to Expect a Miracle with Richard Roberts. Each week, it's a joy to come on this podcast with a very outstanding special guest. And today, Bishop T.D. Jakes. Bishop Jakes, God bless you, and thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to be with you, Dr. Roberts. What a joy and an honor. Uh, just to have this opportunity to share with you. Well, thank you so much. I, I've got to ask you first off, how did you get to where you are from South Charleston, West Virginia? <laughs> That's something I'm going to have to ask God when I get to heaven. <laughs> but you started out small. And, and the first time I ever remember meeting you was on the set at TBN in California. I believe yes. we were on the same program that night, and you yes. you were preaching up a storm uh, for God. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And I said, this man, this man has an anointing by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to touch the nations of the earth, and you have done that. Wow. You know, it's amazing how much God can do with so little. And I think uh, it's kind of like the two fish and five loaves of bread. It wasn't that the lunch was so much, it was the master's hands that blessed it and made it do what it did. And I think that about my own life, uh, I didn't really ever imagine to have accomplished as much as I have accomplished to whatever level that may or may not be, but whatever, to whatever level it is, to God be the glory. It's, it's, it's all been him. It really has. Praise God. Take us back into your childhood, Bishop. Uh, how did this get started in your life? I grew up in and around the, the church, uh, uh, which was very common. The church is the center of our community. And so uh, to grow up in that atmosphere is, is quite normal from little boys playing in uh, little Tom Thumb weddings to Easter plays to singing in the Sunbeam Choir. Uh, church was a part of my life. But I didn't really have a conversion experience until many, many years later. I was baptized when I was 12. Mm -hmm. My father died when I was 16. And to me, the story begins with his ending because it was the death of my father that drove me to the search for my heavenly father. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that uh, my sister and I were talking on the phone the other day, and she was saying how many things she wished my father had lived to see. And I said, I'm not sure that if he lived, he would have had them to see. Mm. It's often what we don't get in life that creates the thirst uh, for God, that inordinate thirst is often born out of inordinate voids in our lives. And so I think the absence of my father, the fact that I was adolescent, the fact that I felt like our conversation uh, between he and I was not finished, drove me in desperation closer to God to try to find what fatherhood felt like. When was the moment and how did it happen that you gave your heart to Christ during that search that you just described? Uh, I didn't realize that I was just religious. Uh, I actually uh, grew up uh, in a very traditional Baptist church and went to sing for uh, some Pentecostal people and realized that there was more to serving God than what I had seen or experienced at that time. You didn't see great moves of glory moving across denominations. Yes like that okay so uh uh today you can't tell by the name on the door the level of glory that's inside the church but back then there were strict lines of demarcation and then we went over there to sing 
And I became impressed that these people had an expression of God that that I didn't. Mm -hmm. And it made me hungry and it made me search. And I went back to my pastor and I asked him, uh, do I have the Holy Spirit? And he said, why, sure, Brother Jakes. He said, uh, I said, so when did I get it? He said, when you joined the church, (laughs) you know, and I remember being a a young man walking back around the road from the church and thinking to myself, I I don't know a whole lot about the Bible, but, but that can't be right because I know when a cool breeze blows across the back of my neck. And if I was filled with the spirit, I wouldn't have missed it. So that must mean I don't have it. And I was so sad to know that. And it drove me into a search for God that, that ultimately uh, brought me into not only salvation, but the indwelling of the Holy spirit and, uh, and a life of, of a ravenous thirst that I still have today. Well, now was it during that time or was it later that you, you and Sarita got together? Oh, I didn't even know her. Didn't yeah, even know I didn't her yet. Know her. Okay. No, I had I hadn't met her for years later. Uh, this this started in my late teens. I started preaching when I was twenty two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got married when I was twenty four. After dating her for six months or less, uh, we got married uh, at twenty four, and I I was already pastoring a church. How did you uh, know? How did you know that she was the one? Oh my gosh. Uh, the, the weird thing is when you're young and you get married, you, you tend to marry somebody that fits where you are mm-hmm. because you don't know where you're going, but some kind of way I knew that wherever I was going, she was the one because she, she fit me. And I, I, not only did I love her, I, I, I believed her. Uh, I, I trusted her in a way that I found difficult as a person to trust another person emotionally. And, uh, and I trusted her and I, I think it's one of the smartest things I ever did was to, uh, to ask her to marry me. Well, I, I understand exactly what you're saying because I, I felt the same way. I dated Lindsay for less than six months before marrying her, but she gave me a gospel of you can Mm-hmm. And I will help you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had had the other side before, and she right. came into my life in such a way saying, you can do this, and I will help you. And Bishop, that makes all the difference in a marriage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the role of the woman is so important. In, in, in our house, my wife is the glue. She she held the kids to, close to me. She held me close to the kids. She held the family together. She understood all of us when, when we didn't understand each other. Uh, and with me preaching and traveling and all of that, uh, my wife became the glue that, that kept us together. <laughs> and my father used to say, uh, he who says he's boss of his own house will lie about other things too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, he, used, he used to say, I'm the head of this house. And my mother would say, yes, Oral, and I'm the neck that turns the head. <laughs> <laughs> I remember your mother. She really was. <laughs> uh, she was She was powerful. I remember once she was being interviewed and uh, by, by a news reporter, and he, he asked her the question, have you ever considered divorcing Oral Roberts? She said, divorce, no. Murder, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, the thing that stands out to me, there was a, 
there was a classiness about her. Yes. She was very classy and, and a grace about her that I, that I remember the most strongly uh, about her, the finesse with which she carried herself. So uh, you came from good stock. <laughs> That's what I felt about Sarita. Uh, the last yeah. time I was with you personally was when one of my daughters and I visited uh, the Potter's house in Dallas. And uh, we came in, we we're going to sit in the back and some of your people found us said, no, come down to the front. So we moved down to the front. Then, then you sent out word, no, I want you on the platform. And they sat me down right behind Sarita. And when yeah. she came out, she was, she was just uh, uh, queenly in the way <laughs> she carried herself. And I had not seen her personally for a long time. And, uh, and so I, felt, I feel the same way about her as you felt about my mama. You know what's funny about that is my, I married a coal miner's daughter. Huh. And and she's from a little part of West Virginia called Alpoca, which is on the other side of nowhere across <laughs> the bridge from nothing. And <laughs> that's the truth. I mean, I, I used to have to walk across a drawbridge uh, that was shaking across the river to get to her house. But but even even then, there was uh, a finesse about her. She's a lady at all times. So. Yes. Uh, I, I deeply agree with you about her. <laughs> now, Bishop, you were destined by God uh, to make a move into the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which really launched you on the national scene uh, like never before. Can you share the steps that you took in order to make that transition and, and all that came along with it? Let's go back a little bit before okay. that. Uh, I, to be honest, I think speaking at Azusa, uh, mm -hmm really took my ministry into an orbit it had never been in before. And then I got on national television uh, as a result of speaking at Azusa, but I was still lived in Charleston. Yes. I remember and, and I was, so, I was in that service. Were you? Yes. Oh, wow. In maybe oh, wow. in the maybe center. You, you should have heard my knees knocking then. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had never seen a crowd that big in my life. And, uh, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, Holy Ghost don't fail me now. <laughs> well, you, you know, you know, there are people who ask that kind of question all the time. Do you ever get nervous? And my father used to say to me, if you're not nervous, then you're dependent upon yourself and not God. That's right. That's so right. A little knee knocking is OK. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of knee knocking. And but 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 what I did have was I came back home to Charleston for several years and so even though my ministry was going abroad and I was preaching nationally, I'm, I'm going to tell you a secret few people know, I didn't even own a camera. I was doing national television and I didn't even own a camera. I got on national television pastoring in a storefront church. And, and I used the footage of preaching at, at big churches to go on air. Yes. But, it, but I came home to hundreds, not thousands of people. And, uh, and then I moved to Dallas. Don't you think that kept your feet on the ground though, coming back to those oh, yes. hundreds? Oh yes. Oh, absolutely. It had everything to do with that, that normalcy and that sense of, you know, not being anything special because I grew up there. So, you know, is, is not this the carpenter's son? And, uh, and I needed that. I needed that. But then when I moved to Dallas, now, instead of just having a national ministry 
and 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 books starting to reach around the world and that sort of thing and speaking everywhere. Now I'm coming home to a church that is exploding. Mm -hmm. And I had not only had I never pastored one, I had never been a member of one. So I'm trying to establish something that I've never done before. One of the great things to your audience, God will take you places that you have no point of reference for and, and teach you to believe him because you're completely out of your comfort zone and you have to rely on him. And so the building of the potter's house, I had to walk by faith because I couldn't walk by sight. I had no point of reference to, to rely upon. And uh, I trusted God. And so far this, this, this July will be 25 years that I've been pastoring uh, the potter's house. If I remember correctly, didn't you used to come back in those early years to our ministers' conferences in Tulsa? Didn't you tell me that you sat up in the rafters uh, yes. during those International Charismatic Bible Ministries Fellowship Conferences with pastors from all over the world? Yes, I, yes, yes, sir, I, I did. And uh, uh, I have been there several times, both on the stage and in the crowd. Yes, yes. And, uh, and was amazed. I actually spoke for the ORU student body. Yes. Uh, for I, remember, their, I remember bringing for their you in. chapel services. I remember yeah. bringing you in. I, I, remember, I remember when you closed that message, you said, I'm out of time, but I'm not out of message. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that day. That's right. It was, I was so uh, honored uh, to be in that setting and to have that opportunity. And, and all of those things continue to enlarge you and, and, and expand you. So I guess what I'm saying, it's not one thing, but when the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, it was all of those steps uh, that, that I continued to take. Uh, fearfully and, and humbly uh, trying to follow the call of God as he dictated it in my spirit that brought me to uh, now I'm 46 years of preaching uh, the gospel, uh, 25 years of pastoring in Dallas, uh, but but I've been preaching many years before I came to Dallas. I'm, I'm working my way toward 50 years of ministry. And uh, if the Lord let me live a few more years, I'll, I'll have a big old anniversary uh, a date coming up and celebrate it with a gallon of ice cream. Well, uh, <laughs> add a gallon for me, huh? Make it strawberry. <laughs> uh, Mine Bishop, too, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I love strawberry. Uh, uh, there's a lot of anointing on strawberry ice cream. Amen. Uh, Bishop, uh, you have launched out into a leadership school. Mm -hmm. uh, which I had the privilege of speaking uh, online to just not uh, many months ago. Can you share a little bit of how the Lord led you into the leadership and why the Lord led you into it? I think the biggest deficit that we have right now is in leadership. So whether uh, I've been doing leadership conferences for years, yes. uh, for thousands and thousands of people, we generally average some 50 different countries from around the world. And so you get a global sense of the hunger that exists both to equip leaders with more information and to undergird them uh, with the fortitude that it takes to lead and the strategy that it takes as well as the prayer life. So there's the practical and the spiritual side of it. And so I've been doing that for a conference for years. We've got one coming up uh, soon that we're having to do virtual 
but we're going to do nonetheless uh, the International Leadership Summit. But having said that, the school, Jake's Divinity School, I, I wouldn't have been qualified had I not surrounded myself with people who were to embark on the mission of the school. But Dr. Antipas Harris and, and several other uh, people, we, we formed a group and said, how can we bring value to people and put them in the room with people that they normally wouldn't get to hear like yourself? I mean, what an honor uh, to have an opportunity for our students to hear you speak down through decades of uh, your experience with God and, and to, uh, to subsidize what they get through their daily courses with these experiences was my dream. So Jake's Divinity School was born out of that. Uh, it's online, uh, it's accessible to anyone. And, uh, and we started doing that. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I love about your ministry is your uh, inclusiveness as opposed to your exclusiveness. Uh, when uh, when my daughter and I were in uh, the service that day with you, you had a very special guest as a part of that uh, program, and that 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 guest was out of the norm. Uh, that guest was not someone you would normally expect to see at a Potter's house, and uh, you and my father were very are very much alike. You're like he was in the in the sense that he was always inclusive. He wanted to include everyone. He said, "How can I have an impact on their lives if I'm not around them? If Absolutely. I'm if I'm just exclusive and I say no because I don't like the way he ties his shoes, I don't like the way she parts her hair, th then I can't be with them." And I love that about you that you are not exclusive but you are inclusive. Well, that goes back to West Virginia. So far as racial inclusion is concerned, 35% of my church was Caucasian in West Virginia. Um, there 5% of the state is black. So if you're going to have a lot of people, you have to have a lot of different kinds of people. And I went to school with a lot of different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. uh, integration was seven years old when I started school. And so I was constantly in an environment that was inclusive and and I have maintained that because I think it's it's the will of God for the church. I think it's good for the country. Uh, I think it's good for our children to know that the world is bigger than your culture or your generation or, or your theology uh, to be exposed to uh, different idioms of thought makes you so much a broader person than you would have been had you lived in isolation and stayed in the safe comfort of people who dress like you, eat like you, think like you, vote like you, feel like you. It, that, can, that can become, um, it can make you an elitist, it can make you tribal, and it can make you narrow. And you can't be a narrow person and serve an omnipotent God. Uh, Paul, the apostle, had a way of being all things to all men. We might call him like a man for all seasons. Uh, he was able to talk at every different level that he was at and, and make his message and tailor his message to that crowd, uh, to, to Romans, uh, to Jews, to cities, to churches, to jailers. He was like that, and that's how I see you. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm smiling because... Uh, it, it's one of the things I talk about uh, 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 in my book that's coming up, and, and it's almost like... Uh, I, I want to talk about that in a minute, too. 
Yeah, you 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 went you're you're into it whether you know it or not because there is a different way and a different approach that you have if you're preaching for Hillsong in Australia that is different from how you would approach the Church of God in Christ at a national convention or Pentecostal assemblies of the world. The message doesn't change, but the method in which the message is conveyed, you have to have that type of uh, flexibility to be able to be diverse enough. And you're exactly right. I think the reason that Paul so exceeded Peter and the other apostles is his ability to become all things to all people and to be able to merge and mesh into a crowd without losing his identity. You know, you're speaking of uh, your knees knocking earlier when you preached in a setting that you weren't sure exactly how you're going to react in. Back in the 80s, uh, my father and I established a ministry on our campus called Give Me a Chance. And it was designed to help African-American young men and women come to college. And pretty soon I was being asked to speak in uh, African-American churches all across the country. And I was called by Dr. Clay Evans up yes. in Chicago, who pastors, who pastored at that time, the Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church was one of the great churches in America. Absolutely. And, uh, I went up there with fear and trepidation because here he's invited me. I'm an evangelist in the healing ministry. It's a Baptist church. And right. I said, now, Lord, what do you want me to do? If you give me a word of knowledge, do you want me to give it or do you want me not to give it? He said, you just obey me. So I started preaching and my knees were knocking like yours uh, were that that time you expressed it earlier. And right out of the box, the Lord gave me a word of knowledge about someone being healed in their back. And I said, now, Lord, what do you want me to do? He said, just give it. And I gave that word. And the first healing was, was, uh, was the pastor's wife. Wow. She had had 25 years of back problems and she got healed. And I mean, she danced from one side of that church to the other. The people rejoiced. And I said, you know what, folks, I'm at home. I'm at home. I feel like I'm, I'm at home. And that, that, that is the spirit that you have. That's the spirit that my father had, that spirit of inclusiveness. As I noticed, as I walked down the hallway back towards your office before we had lunch that day, all there were pictures up and down the wall on all yes. people from all walks of life. And you yes. were talking about how can I how can I have an effect for God on their lives unless I know them? Right. You know, you, you can't convert people you won't talk to. Yeah. And and what we do is we talk at people and we talk about people, but we but we don't get to know them. Uh and, and the love of God is really what draws people, the love of God. Uh and 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 I think sometimes we lose the spirit of the law and we're left with just yeah. the letter of the law. Yeah. And yeah. and Jesus brought the spirit of the law to us, not just the letter. Moses brought us the letter, but Jesus brought us the spirit uh, of the law behind it. And that spirit is loving your neighbor as you love yourself and being able to uh, be able to communicate with various types of people to articulate your faith, to be able to listen at them and include your own perspectives and not, not divide because we disagree. We don't we don't have to divide because we we disagree. We don't we don't have to shun people. Uh, we, this is how we say it in West Virginia. It said just because you graduated, don't burn down the school. <laughs> and it's an old country way of saying you may know something that I don't know, 
but don't burn down the school because because I haven't yeah. graduated to the level of thinking that you have. Uh, leave the school open and give me room to grow into it. Yes, uh, and I think that's uh, the first step toward the divisiveness being healed, uh, the the racial bias that is present, not just here, but around the world. Uh, when Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're going to start healing racial divides in this nation and around the world. You, you're absolutely right. And then the other thing you begin to find out, <clears throat> you're, you're not that different from your neighbor. That's right. You know, once you get past uh, little idiosyncrasies, uh, everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be heard and understood. Everybody wants to be appreciated. Everybody wants what's best for their children. Everybody wants to feel safe. Those, those are things that are common to man. And so uh, a lot of the mysticism is removed. And Jesus worked hard because the problems we're having now existed in the, in the Bible days. Uh, the Samaritans were outliers by far theologically. They were, they were uh, castigated. Uh, they were ostracized. And, and when Jesus tells the story about the Good Samaritan, the whole point of the story is elicited from the fact that the lawyer then asked him, who is my neighbor? If I love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? Trying to trip him up. And Jesus tells the story about the Good Samaritan to a room full of Jews saying that the Levite and the priest of which you have the utmost respect for could see him bleeding and turn and walk away. But the Good Samaritan came and poured in the oil and the wine. Yes. And the reason Jesus does that is to say, don't X anybody out. The woman at the well says, you know, your people have no dealings with my people, seeing as I am a Samaritan. But Jesus sat down at the well and waited for her and had a conversation with a woman who had had five husbands and was living with the man. And Jesus was able to minister to her because he uh, he overrode the, the biases that sometimes we unconsciously have because of our lack of exposure. Mm. Bishop, uh, I've never met Pastor Jasper Williams in Atlanta. Um, I have followed his ministry over the years. I know you know who I'm talking about. Yes. He is a prince of a preacher. Yes. Uh, I've always loved and admired him from afar. Um, and, uh, he, uh, of course, he was, he was engaged to speak at Aretha Franklin's funeral. And I was very interested because Aretha was a guest on our television program back in the 1980s. As a matter of fact, I, I sang a duet with Aretha. Uh, people wow. are often shocked to find out that Richard Roberts sang with Aretha Franklin, <laughs> but I did. I sang with a lot of those guest stars on our shows in those years. And he said something that came under, under heavy criticism. He talked about black people coming together. He talked about uh, when, when white people uh, kill black people, it's bad and something's got to be done and said, but he said, uh, he said, black lives are really going to matter when black people stop killing black people. And, and he, he had a press conference afterwards because the media really came after him and he reiterated what he said. And uh, I did not know how to reach him. I wanted to call him and say, God bless you, brother, for saying it like it really is, because he could say it in a way that no way that I could say it like the way he said it. And I know you understand what I'm talking about. You know, uh, 
Uh, I, I know him. I don't know him well. I met him. Everybody has heard of him. He's an absolute legend, to be sure. Yes. Uh, one of the things that I think is there are two sides of the same coin. Whether you're talking about racial bias coming from white people, nobody wants their child killed by any color. That's right. Okay, there is no good way for you to kill my child. That's right. So whether it's a drive-by shooting or whether I dial 911 and the police shooting, when I see the blood of my son running out of his head, I'm never going to be a happy parent. Yes. So, yes, there is there is a problem both ways, and they both have to be addressed, but they are a reflection of the same issue. Anytime you take people in areas and trap them with poverty and their needs are not met, uh, they, they, they're going to turn on themselves. And so it, it, it is not with, with blackness does not come a predisposition to want to kill each other, but with poverty, low opportunities, low jobs and low way and no way out comes that propensity. When, when, when COVID came, uh, to uh, New York and all the restaurants had shut down. There was an article came out in the New York Post and it said that the, the rats, because they lived off of the garbage of the restaurants with no garbage out there, they started turning on themselves mm -hmm. and they started uh, becoming cannibalistic. Yes. Any species left hungry will become cannibalistic left long enough. And so we we must have a conversation that goes beyond colors to opportunities, to education, to uh, possibilities, uh, because if we only talk about it from the perspective of colors alone, yes. then that would suggest that there's a good way to die and a bad way to die. There is no good way to lose your child. And I don't see any more glory in a drive by shooting than I do. In, in police brutality, yes. no matter who's, or, or killing the police. Yes. We have got to stop killing. <laughs> we have got to stop killing, period. And, and, and rather than allowing the media to pit us against emphasizing this side and the other media emphasizing that side, and then we argue about which side is better, a dead child is a dead child. And, and I have buried too many of them not to know that there is no difference in the salt and the tears of a mother whose son was judged and tried on the sidewalk and the tears of a mother whose, whose baby was shot through a window of a project building in the inner city. Those, that salt is still the same. There is no difference between the salty tears of, of uh, what's going on in our headlines right now with, with all of those people in the grocery store in Boulder yes. being killed, and, and they were white. Yes, that's right. But, but pain, is pain. pain is pain. It doesn't come in colors. And it hurts. It, it hurts really bad. I can't imagine it. I have never walked up to a person who lost their child and said, I know how you feel because I don't know and I don't want to know. And I hope I never know uh, that kind of pain that exists when your child, the one that you pushed out of your body uh, or the one that you held in your arms when they were born, uh, whether he is pressed up under a knee saying, I can't breathe or whether he stole a cigar and got shot to death on a sidewalk. 
there is no way to reconcile that this is the only way for humans to live. And I think that our country can do much better with those problems on both sides as we begin to talk about the underlying problems in the inner city and the underlying problems in our criminal justice system. They're both different sides of the same coin. Yes, and you're so right. The age doesn't matter. Uh, whether they're a teenager or in their 20s or 30s or older as some who were killed in Boulder, or if they're just a newborn. I remember, I remember when our firstborn child, Richard Oro, died in my arms in the neonatal intensive care unit here in Tulsa at St. John's Hospital. He was only 36 hours old, but Bishop, he was my son. He right. was my son. And it, it, it cut us to the core uh, when that happened. My wife pointed her finger at me after having three miscarriages before, and now a dead son in my arms with everyone we knew praying. Uh, she said, don't you ever ask me to get pregnant again. And uh, she and I uh, took off uh, to Nigeria for my first uh, African crusade. And we ministered to so many couples who had lost infant children like we had. And we began to pray in tongues and interpret back. And God began to show us he knew something we didn't know and he would bring us through. And so I have this compassion in my heart for anyone who's lost a child, no matter how, uh, what the age is, because I know, I know what that feels like. That's right. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And not, and I'm glad you said that it transcends age because my children, my oldest children are 40 and uh, there's, but they, when a, when your child dies, you don't see them as a 40-year-old or a 70-year-old. They're your babies. They're your babies. They're always going to be my baby, you know? And, and, and we have a terrible problem eating at the underbelly of our country that we are so busy trying to prove who's right that we don't fix the problem. Neither thing is right. So now you have to choose a side when neither thing is right. What we want to do is to be able to sleep in our beds safely at night, is to be able to have our kids play in the front yard and be safe at night. We don't want to have an argument over who, who shoots them. <laughs> we, we, we don't want them shot at all. No more than anybody wants to go into a grocery store or a bunch of whites in a movie theater shot to death. We, we want to feel safe in our country, safe in our churches, and most of all, safe in our beds. And, and I think we're, we're not there yet. Yeah, doesn't that also come down to leadership, as you were talking about earlier, uh, that we as Americans have to put the right leaders into position. I know we're, we're commanded by the Bible to pray for those leaders, no matter who they are. But sometimes, yes. sometimes we get, I'm going to use the word bamboozled, and sometimes we put men and women all across the nation in office that had no business being there in the first place. And they don't seem to have the compassion. And somehow as a nation, we've got to rise above that. Compassion is the key thing. Compassion is the key thing. But this is this is my saying that, that I th I'm a great believer in leadership. I do think we need great leadership. I do think that we have created a climate where some of our best and brightest men won't run for office because we dig so far down in the trash can of their history that they they would not want to put themselves or their family through the, the assault of running for office. That's part of the problem. Second thing is... I think we keep changing chefs, but we don't acknowledge that the oven is broke. 
it's deeper than one person in a position. The whole infrastructure of the way the combativeness of Congress, the tone deafness to what America is saying, the whole thing needs to be looked at and examined because some of the things that we need to have done are just common sense. We, we need clean water. Whether you live in Beverly Hills or whether you live in Flint, Michigan, nobody wants to drink a glass of water and end up with a, a deathly disease. We can do better in this country. Yes, we can. Uh, we, we must do better in this country. Uh, here, here's one of the reasons that I think keeps us from doing better. And, and, and please forgive me, I have been on Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and, and God bless all of them. But that's a business. When news becomes a business, then ratings become the criteria. And when we choose a side, we choose the truth that best suits us, whereas the combat drives up the ratings. So, so now it used to be when you and I grew up, we had one news, we all heard the same news. We, we, we were exposed to the same information at six o'clock, Walter Cronkite would come on, you know, and he would say what he had to say. There wasn't somebody on the other side contradicting whatever they said. And we had to pick a side. Yes. And while we are picking a side and, and fighting, there are billions of dollars being made in the business and the problems are not being resolved. Yeah. That That's a problem on the ground. The problem in the government is we're more loyal to the fight than we are to the, to the solution. And I think that's something that we got to look at where we have people in positions that are solution oriented and then that we have great leadership at the helm. Because to be, to have that, I cannot even imagine the pressure that comes with being in the, in a position of that much, I, I wanted to say that much power, but also that much pain and stress. Who would want to be president on 9-11? You know, who, who, who would want to deal with Katrina? Who would want to deal with the immigration problem we have on the border while you're dealing with the pandemic? Who, 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 who amongst us is smart enough to handle all of that as quickly as they need to handle it. And yet we keep looking for a Messiah out of one person. So we keep changing chefs and arguing about who was the best chef. But until we fix the oven and fix everything else that's underneath it, I don't think we will have lived out our highest ideals. Our ideals are amazing. It's our realities that need work. Now, is all of this a portion of the reason why you wrote this new book, Don't Drop the Mic? You know, yes, we are doing what Don't Drop the Mic is all about. We're talking and we keep talking. We're dialoguing. We're talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, 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 we're talking about uncomfortable things, but we're talking. And what, what happens in America is, when you say something and maybe you didn't word it right and, and they come after you either side, right or left, we, we back away and we don't talk about it anymore. No, push over it and keep talking. The book started out and I'm focusing a lot on 
preaching and the, the changing of guards and the fact that the old generals are passing away. And as we pass to younger men and women, don't drop the mic. The preaching of the gospel is important. This is what I learned about preaching. This is what I learned about what to look for in a text. This is what I learned to see in the scripture. But then it also migrates over into what we're doing right now. When, when two people from two different backgrounds and two different worlds have a conversation uh, and we bring both of our perspectives together. And if we don't drop the mic and we keep talking to each other rather than at each other, uh, we, it's it's like a marriage. If 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 Serena and I are having a disagreement, and all I'm waiting for is for her to take a breath so I can defend myself, we'll never have a peaceful house. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, and but I have to be able to listen. And in the book, I talk about if you lose your hearing, your speech deteriorates, and and so being a great speaker is partially being a great listener. And I talk about how to listen, how to listen at a text, how to listen at another person, how to listen at another group of people, and then how to respond in such a way that the solution is not lost in the defense of my position. Well, this book, uh, Don't Drop the Mic, is available on Amazon and other places where books are available. I urge you to get a copy of this book. Bishop, uh, I'll bring this to a conclusion by telling you something my father taught me. He said, you'll never, uh, you'll never agree 100% with anyone. And he said, no one will ever agree with you 100%. He said, you probably, the highest you probably ever get is 70 to 80%. He said, if you get 70 to 80%, eat the straw and spit out the sticks. <laughs> he, said, he said, throw away the 20 to 30% that you can't handle and accept the 70 to 80% that you can instead of throwing away the 70 to 80% that you like because of the 20 to 30% that you can't stand. You just, so, just, you just lowered the divorce rate in America. Yes. You just stopped the, the, the fighting in the streets. That's what's killing every institution that we have that we want a hundred when we ought to settle for 80. Yeah. I well, think that's a great, great I, I don't, thought. I don't agree with everything my wife believes and my wife doesn't agree with everything that I believe, but you know, we've been married 41 years. <laughs> yeah, You worked it out, didn't you? you? You worked it out pretty good. And I always get the last word. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Bishop, God bless you. Would you pray over the people right now? It's my pleasure. Father, we are the only species that we know of in all of the universe that has been gifted with the gift of language, the gift of speech. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus, wherever there is division, wherever there is discord, wherever there is pain, that you would give us a kind of language that we would use that gift that you've given us not to fight, not to divide, but to heal and to listen and to learn and to grow. I pray for those whose hearts are broken, there is no medicine for a broken heart. I pray for those that are grieving, for those that are mourning, for those that are suffering right now, that you would touch them and heal the brokenhearted, the wounded, and the suffering. Thank you for Brother Roberts and his life and his legacy and his commitment to you and his, his, his fervency for the spirit of God. Thank you for his gifts and thank you for all that are listening. That I pray that in some way, 
that they are blessed by our conversation and that they don't drop the mic, but they continue to talk as well to each other and to others until others cease to be others and we all become what you prayed for, that we might be one. Amen. And I add my prayers to his prayers right now. I speak into your life and I take authority over anything and everything that has come against you. I rebuke every sickness and every disease, every fear and every doubt. I come against anything that's unlike God that has tried to attach itself to you. I bind it in the name of Jesus. And I pray for healing in the totality of your life from your head, even unto your feet. In the name of Jesus, I pray and I believe. And my friend, I expect a miracle for you. And I believe something good is going to happen to you. And I pray over this nation. I thank God for healing this nation. And I want to be a part of it. And I know you do too. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. Bishop, God bless you. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a real joy. And be sure and get a copy of Don't Drop the Mic. It's available wherever books are sold. God bless you. I'll see you next week uh, with a brand new podcast and a very special guest. God bless you. And I do believe something good is going to happen to you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expect a Miracle with Richard Roberts. Please share with your friends on social media and help spread the healing, saving good news of Jesus with others. And if you need prayer, go to oralroberts.com slash prayer or call the prayer group at 918-495-7777. We believe God wants you healed and whole in all areas of your life.